This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Daniel Mahoney is Professor Emeritus at Assumption University, where he serves as the Augustinian Chair and Professor of Political Science. Professor Mahoney earned his PhD from the Catholic University of America, and he has contributed important academic work, mostly exploring the intersection of religion and politics and history. He's the author or editor of 12 books. His most recent book, The Statesman as Thinker, is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Mahoney, welcome to Thinking in Public. Well, thank you, Dr. Muller. Very happy to be here. You have written this most recent book, The Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. You've got a couple of controversial words there in the uh, the first part of your title, The Statesman as Thinker. So I'm going to just uh, kind of throw uh, something at you, and that is, uh, what exactly is a statesman, and why would you dare to write about statesmanship in the 21st century? Well, you know, statesmanship, I think, is an old and noble term but it's also not one that's regularly used in contemporary political discourse. Um, unfortunately, we reduce uh, le- uh, political leadership to the word leader. And, you know, the le- leader has um, some very unfortunate connotations in the 20th century. You know, the Fuhrer, the Duce, right. Stalin was the Vosges. And leadership can uh, suggest tyrannical command and that kind of thing. So um, we're often very promiscuous with our language, not thinking through the implications or the connotations of certain words. But the the statesman, certainly in uh, in, in English, has always connoted an outstanding form of political rule or political leadership. The best, the simplest way I could put it would be um, the statesman is somebody who is the polar opposite of the tyrant. Aristotle tells us in his politics that the tyrant rules for his own self-interest and in complete contradistinction to the common good. Well, the statesman is somebody who rules for the common good, but um, you might say a statesman is somebody who combines ambition with public spiritedness with a concern for the common good. That's very rare to put those three things together. I've I've uh, distinguished the statesman from the tyrant, and I think that's a essential distinction. One wants to think dramatically or at a dramatic historical moment. Think Churchill versus Hitler in the summer of 1940. The magnanimous statesman versus the the mad but also ideological tyrant. There's also a full range, a gradation of uh, political leaders, I think, who can be public spirited without embodying what Cicero and the Greeks and following them, much of the Christian tradition called the cardinal virtues. You You might say the virtues that precede the great theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, the virtues of courage, moderation, justice, and prudence. And um, uh, sometimes in the book, I uh, identify statesmanship with honorable ambition. 
people. Well, you put who, a moral context to it, and that's what's so important because uh, people, even I think in the in contemporary English usage, when they do refer to statesmen, think of it as something morally neutral. Right? Joseph Stalin was a statesman. Franklin Roosevelt was a statesman. Um, there's an essential moral content to the uh, to the meaning of that word, and I appreciate the fact you're seeking to rescue the virtues here. Oh yeah, for me, the notion of statesmanship. It's empirical in the sense that it describes a real phenomena, but that phenomena is normative. It The right. virtues are integral to the phenomena itself. It's not a value-free. Max Weber, the famous German sociologist, was a very capable and wise man, didn't really follow his own theory, but he was uh, one of the first social scientists to talk about wertfrei social science, value-free. So he said... You know, he lumped it all together. The charismatic leader would include Hitler and Churchill and Pericles and Lincoln and Robespierre. My view is if you think that we are incapable as individuals and as members of co uh, political communities of distinguishing uh, different forms of leadership or charisma, then we understand nothing at all because we cannot understand reality without the moral qualities and the virtues integral to that reality itself. So that's a very important thing for Christians to realize that it's not just a matter of power with faith. Um, uh, faith is always accompanied by, or should be accompanied by a concern for virtue. And uh, a ver you know, I, would, I would say religious faith deepens and completes those natural virtues, but um, it certainly doesn't do away with them. They're, well, no, they're, and, and uh, you know, Protestant and Catholic alike, we would point to the classical virtues as part of God's gift of the natural law and of creation order, of natural revelation. Uh, that's not enough, but uh, it's uh, still a part of, the, of God's giftedness to humanity that, uh, that the classical virtues uh, have endured. I think of the founding of the American political experiment and the fact that so many of the framers explicitly sought to ground their identity as if they jumped backwards over, or at least they attempted to jump backwards over, you know, 19 or 20 centuries of human history in order to uh, be even depicted in statuary as if they're Roman and Greek. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, know, I, think, I think the founders, uh, you know, their understanding, you might say, of the moral life is well, it's influenced in part by a modern tradition of natural rights. It's deeply indebted to the biblical tradition, uh, but it's also in their understanding of political virtue, of you might say high-minded, public-spirited ambition. They were readers of Plutarch's Lives and Absolutely. Thucydides and Aristotle's Politics. And a book that was very important for the Christian tradition is a book I talk about on the Statesman and Thinker, Adeo Fickes, the book on duties by Cicero. Uh, that was uh, probably the most important book of moral philosophy for not only the Catholic Middle Ages, but for many of the reformers. And it's um, it's really a very noble and admirable description of the kinds of qualities of soul that are necessary uh, for a decent human life, but but also for the exercise of political authority in a free and lawful community. So I think we, we need to recover these categories because they, uh, to come back to something I said a moment ago, they help us understand reality and they help, help us understand ourselves. Now there's some, you know, there's some tensions here because 
anyone who spends an hour with scripture knows that humility, uh, you know, humility before, you know, God, our father and friend is uh, in some tension, I think, with greatness of soul. But I don't think there is a radical opposition. And no, uh, there can't be or we're in big trouble. Yeah. yeah, I mean, God yeah. ordains our authority yeah. and the natural virtues are part of the created natural order. And uh, so if there's tensions, you know, there, perhaps there's a there's always a possibility that somebody with great gifts can forget the source of those gifts. But I also think in modern moral life and political life, sometimes there is a failure to appreciate that we're obliged to use Absolutely. our talents and gifts at the service. Yeah in defense of liberty and human dignity and the common good. If we don't do that, I would say that's a terrible moral application. That's right. You know, the Christian uh, uh, biblical worldview begins with the fact that the gifts are not evenly distributed. And uh, so there are, there are individuals of greatness, and, and that's true in the biblical account, both in the Old and New Testament. The, the, it, it, is not, it is not an egalitarian document as if uh, there is no uh, uh, differential in, in the gifts given to people and the vocations invested, uh, you know, in people. At the same time, you know, the, the Bible's very clear about uh, the, uh, the, the power of sin. And, uh, you know, I would identify very much as an Augustinian, in which case you look for greatness, but you never expect the greatness to be untainted. Uh, you just thank God for the greatness when it appears in the right clothes at the right time with the right beliefs yeah. Uh, and I think you make a very important point that the affirmation of the Imago Dei uh, is not uh, it's not identical to, you know, this aggressive modern egalitarianism that levels right. and denies distinctions and denies perhaps a differentiates differentiation, the goods and talents that God has given each of us. You know, Augustine's very interesting because, you know, I, I, as you'll remember, Cicero is a major figure in, in my book because I think he provides a template and a, use a fancy word from philosophy, kind of phenomenology of the moral political virtues. But, you know, Augustine in the city of God is very critical of Rome, but we have to pay close attention. He, um, he saw a danger in Roman virtue that, you know, people would think of virtue as too self-sufficient, you know, Rome, you know, as the real source of authority rather than God. But on the other hand, if you look closely, Augustine admired the best of pagan virtue. And he and uh, and it was Cicero's Hortensius, a, a book lost of us, that turned him to philosophy, that uh, you know, allowed him to see that our reason can give us access to wisdom. And right. so, um, uh, yeah, Augustine. And pagan a virtue is not entirely pagan, Augustine would say. It, it, the, 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 the pagans may not know that their virtue is grounded in a metaphysical source. I, I, uh, I, I, think, I think that's quite is. right. And the, the other thing is that um, um, I think... Christianity can add to classical wisdom something you alluded to a moment ago, namely the fall, original sin, yes. a certain skepticism about the absolute exercise of power by anyone, including the virtuous, you know, but uh, that's that doesn't mean that uh, uh, we reduce, we deny the the possibility of 
public spirited leadership or we make no distinctions as I did at the beginning of my remarks between the, the, the statesman, the tyrant, the ordinary or even mediocre politicians. So to be aware of the fall, it's a powerful argument, not necessarily indebted to modern liberal political philosophy against for limited government. But um, statesmanship is a category that only really belongs to free government, because as we said before, it's normative. I, I think to refer to the statesmanship of, of Stalin or somebody like that or Mao Zedong is to misuse language. That's right. You know, by the way, uh, I think of one of the uh, statesmen as thinkers you, you uh, cover uh, quite well in the book, and that's Winston Churchill. And I often think of the Augustinian understanding of humanity uh, with that anecdote about Churchill as a boy being told that he is a bug. And he will say, then I will be a lightning bug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, a lightning bug is still a bug, but a lightning bug is a lightning bug. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, he told, uh, it's really interesting, two figures I deal with in the book, two great 20th century statesmen, Winston Churchill and the great French uh, statesman Charles de Gaulle. They both had a sense, even in their teenage years, that they were called to something excellent. De Gaulle wrote a paper when he was in high school at the age of 15, that in the year 1930, General de Gaulle would save France and Europe from the German invader. And Andrew Roberts reports in his very fine biography of Churchill, that Churchill once told a buddy of his uh, at Sandhurst about the same time that he, um, he was called to high things, you know. He so called the, it the dream. The he, dream. He, he said it was revealed to him in a dream, and he talked about it with his contemporaries as a teenager. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's quite extraordinary. These were men who had a sense of destiny, but never, ever would they think that they would do anything to accumulate power or that the rapacious and immoral exercise right. of authority, you know, could create a field for greatness. Yeah, you and think so, of someone um, thing like, uh, excuse me, William Manchester in his, uh, his first volume on Churchill, which, by the way, prosaically is one of the most beautiful introductory chapters of any work of biography ever written. Yeah, it's very well done. I agree. It, yeah, it's not, it's not the most factually insightful uh, uh, biography, uh, but it, it is the Gilbert's the 100%, best. Martin Gilbert's 100% accurate, but he writes a little bit, not exactly. badly, but a little bit like an academic historian. William Ch uh, Manchester is a journalist who knows how to write. He yeah, knows how you know, to evoke the, right. thing to the spirit. So, uh, yeah. What, what I'm uh, referencing there with uh, Manchester is where he speaks of Churchill in the introduction, and he says this. He says he would, like a Manichaean, he would, he would gather all the forces of light against the forces of darkness and would accumulate massive supra-constitutional power in order to defend liberty and give it away. Yeah, It's just yeah. an amazing thing. Well, you know, the, the Romans had this office of the dictator, and the dictator is misunderstood. It was a constitutional office, and it meant that during a time of crisis, when the republic or the homeland was threatened, one man prime minister, chief executive, a general in the Roman context would do his duty, save the Republic and go home. And that was, right. for example, the model of Cincinnati. Cincinnati, yes. So many Americans co rightly yes. compared George Washington to. But 
Uh, you know, when de Gaulle uh, was given what his wife called the royal order of the boot in uh, yeah. July 1945, he went home. He, uh, of course, he became the leader of the opposition of parliament. Right. He, he didn't go home to retire, but yes, he went home. He went home. He didn't retire. He turned in uh, his seals of office. And uh, uh, both de Gaulle and uh, Churchill wrote their memoirs during their years out of yes. power after the Second World War. Both would return to Gaulle to establish a new French Republic because France, you know, had been undoubtedly very badly governed from uh, um, from 1789 onwards. So France was a country in search of a viable, stable, lawful political order. And de Gaulle more or less gave it to them in 1958. Churchill had other tasks, but, you know, he took on a new role as a world statesman, uh, most famously two speeches he gave, one um, in Fulton, Missouri on March 5th, 1946, the famous, he called it the sinews of peace because he was laying out a strategy to maintain peace and liberty and Western civilization. But it's famously remembered as the Iron Curtain speech because it's dramatic image of the Iron Curtain from Staten. Absolutely. To, uh, yeah, to-, to uh, Trieste. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful passage and a memorable speech. And then he gave a great speech at Zurich on September 19, 1946. It's a year, just a little over a year out of power. And while the while Churchill didn't want Britain to be a full member of an emerging European community, he because it had its Commonwealth and it had its special relationship with the United States. He wanted Britain to be a friend of the, the pacification of Europe. But what he said in that great speech is, I am going to say something that will astonish you. So in September 46, the war's just ended. And he said, the future of Europe, a Europe rooted in peace and freedom, uh, will be found in the, uh, the reconciliation between a spiritually great France and a spiritually great Germany. It took only somebody with Winston Churchill's moral authority could have delivered the Iron Curtain speech at a time when public opinion was still enamored of the alliance with Uncle Joe and the Soviet Union, and could have spoken about the need to incorporate a free and revitalized Germany in um, the community of free nations, so he went, and and he and both both speeches are are as you know as memorable as anything Churchill ever delivered. Um, you know, one thing I should add about Churchill in the book, I do deal with the question of his religious views, uh, which are interesting. I would say he was certainly not a Christian of Orthodox conviction, but he was deeply influenced by Christian ethics. He was certainly not an atheist. Um, I sometimes say he had a bit of a classical pagan soul. But, you know, in all his wartime speeches, he never said we're fighting for democracy against the Third Reich. He says we're fighting to defend liberal and Christian civilization. And he, and he, had, he had a deep sense that um, what Nazi Germany and, and communism, too, and its Soviet form represented was a frontal assault on the conception of human dignity that had arose had arisen in the West. That's right. 
And, well, you uh, pointed to Christian civilization. I think that's absolutely crucial for yeah. uh, for not only uh, Churchill but for many others. Uh, you know, I, I I'm a Baptist. I'm an evangelical. I'm a conversionist. Um, and so when I look at someone like Churchill, I I, I see someone who, who who does not fit that paradigm, and actually, you know, kind of was clear that he didn't. He spoke of himself as a an a, a, an external buttress on the cathedral rather than a, a pillar within. Um, but on the other hand, the the, the entire... that was almost a self-deprecating yeah. remark, you know. Right. But he he was you know he but but when he he gave a great speech um, October fifth, nineteen thirty eight, on the Munich Pact. And again, he, there he spoke about a barbarous pagan ethics. So this was a new paganism. This wasn't Cicero, Plato, and Aristotle. This was a paganism that warred on all the virtues, warred on human dignity, and warred on the essential Christian conviction that every human person is made in the image and likeness of God. And in his own way, Churchill believed that. He, he, well, I want to say he believed in Christianity. That's the point I was going to make. He, yeah. he believed in the essential uh, centrality of Christianity uh, to Western civilization. And about that, he never wavered. And so, wavered. you know, he, he considered himself very much a, a member of the Church of England. He did. And, uh, and, you know, never more so than in moments of urgency, uh, such as during the war, but also in moments of uh, of national identity, such as the coronation of uh, uh, of Queen Elizabeth II, you know his statements were emphatically uh, affirmative of the essential Christian character of Western civilization. He did, and you know he occasionally prayed. Yes, uh, and uh, he. Um, so did Lincoln. So did Lincoln, and Churchill also said, I think in 1931. I mentioned this just in passing, so you may not remember it, but he said, if Christ were to come back to earth, he says, maybe he would minister to the poor untouchables in India, who he thought, you know, needed the grace and mercy of God, needed to be recognized for the human persons that they were. I was always struck by that remark because there's a, there's a Christian sensibility, you know, the, the sense that um, the care for the least of our brethren is a hallmark of of Christian civilization, and this yeah, great said, said war, by a man born in Blenheim Palace. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> he was uh, uh, just uh, the first cousin of the Duke of Marlborough and uh, uh, a direct descendant of John Churchill, who, in a way, was the. I mean, I, I told some people sometimes ask me about Marlborough, and I say, well, he was the Churchill of the the late seventeenth and early eighteenth century. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you know, uh, Churchill described himself as a boy, as the first son of the second son of the Duke of Marlborough. That's great. Yeah. He, even as a boy, he was clever. He yes. knew his history. He was witty, and he knew how to put a phrase together. Absolutely. And the fact that we're talking about those phrases more than a century after they were uttered, that's a very great deal. Right. Lincoln, Lincoln's another one, by the way, whose religiosity is probably ultimately unorthodox, but who had a deep... Maybe more so than Churchill, I, I would say, more as a so. theologian. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And yet, Lincoln's entire thinking about ethics and politics is informed by the engagement with the King James Bible. Absolutely. And uh, 
And, you know, in his early writings, I don't know if you've ever read some of the work of Alan Guales, though, the intellectual oh, story. And yeah, I'm sure the most have. common guest on this program thus far. He's a friend and a wonderful man yeah. and one of the great intellectual historians. You know, he began yes. as a religious historian writing on Jonathan Edwards and others. Right. And uh, and his first kind of movement into the Lincoln period of the Civil War was a book called Redeemer President. But what Allen has shown is that as a young man, more rationalist, more skeptical religiously, Lincoln was obsessed with, in an in a almost secularized Calvinist mm -hmm. way, with fatalism. You know, That's right. What providence. 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 He, he would call it providence. And that, that yeah. morphed very quickly into a deep and abiding reflection from the 1840s until his assassination on April 14, 1865, on the relationship between divine providence and free will. You know, uh, an argument can be made, and, and I thought of this reading your book, an argument can be made, and uh, I, I'll just put it straightforwardly, that uh, many of the great statesmen on the world stage, when they have arrived, could well be described to some sense as Manichaean. They, they have to divide the world between light and darkness, and they have to believe that the light can overcome the darkness, and, and they rally a nation, a people, an army, uh, a generation. Uh, to defeat the darkness. And uh, you see that in Churchill, who again, Manchester calls him a, a Manichaean. And, uh, and, and then if you look at uh, Lincoln, much of what he says in the early period is very Manichaean. Uh, his, his, his last speeches, and especially his second inaugural, appear to be a self-conscious attempt to overcome that in order that uh, a people divided by war could become one people again. You know, Reinhold Niebuhr has a book called The Irony of American History, which ends with just a two-and-a-half-page reflection on the uh, second inaugural, but I think a very rich one where he says, Lincoln managed, on the one hand, to uh, uphold you might say, in a viable standard of right and wrong, good and evil. You know, that God is in judgment of, 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 of Americans taking the bread from the labor that Black people have earned with the sweat of their brow. On the same, and the, uh, he never equivocates on the fundamental standard of right and wrong, of moral judgment. On the other hand, uh, he shows in a, in a kind of Augustinian way that our own motives are mixed, that um, God both is- sides. Both, both sides. Both sides are under both divine sides. judgment. Yeah. But again, without the kind of moral relativism that often accompanies Absolutely. political judgment today, when, when Christians lose- right. The, you might say the the limited truth in that kind of moral Manichaeanism, because, you know, look, one, one only has to read scripture to to see that in, in some, there is a cosmic battle between good and evil that is real. And at the same time, as one of my heroes, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, always said, the line dividing good and evil runs through every heart. And the problem with these terrible ideological and tyrannical movements that marred the 20th century was that they were so sure 
that evil was localized in a particular group or class. We see this today with the new racialism. You know exactly who the evildoers are. If you only get rid of them, that's why all this talk about systemic racism has nothing to do with fighting the scourge of racism because it itself is a secularized perversion of religious Manichaeanism where that, that still is tied to this notion through the through political revolution or through social struggle or the right kind of political order, we can expunge evil from Earth, right. this earth. And that and is that, part of the reason why the left is always replaced by another left, replaced by yet another left, uh, is because that Manichaeanism and, and, is never and, satisfied. They're never satisfied. And, um, and, you know, there's a great spiritual and political maturity, a kind of moderation that comes. And I think Lincoln had it at the end of his life. When you recognize evil for what it is, but you also turn the sword inward in the in the language of, of, of Jesus Christ, you know that we're not going to expunge evil from this world short of the consummation and the coming of the kingdom of heaven, but we are capable of restricting evil within ourselves. We are capable of creating um, or, or, or arriving at a political order that reflects some of the better angels of our nature without forgetting the human propensity to injustice and sin. So I've always liked, I've always liked, liked the Niebuhr thing because I think he captures that whether Lincoln knew it was an Augustinian moment, he had arrived at a position, I think, of great spiritual maturity and lucidity with the second inaugural. And then right. I have to believe right. the King James Bible had a lot to do with that because, you know, Lincoln's reading and the classical literature is not as extensive as Americans might think. Um, but uh, the King James Bible, I mean, it came out of him in virtually every single speech. The other great influence on him was uh, Shakespeare. I mean, it's amazing. I remember reading in Lord Charnwood's great biography from the early 20th century of Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln was deeply obsessed. I don't mean that in a critical way, but preoccupied with the question of the human soul, human right. motives, you know, and this temptation to tyranny that he saw at work in slavery. And he actually read large chunks of Shakespeare's Macbeth to the cabinet as they were riding down the Potomac. Who else? I, I, I am sure... These very worldly men, and they were quite capable men, Seward and the others. But I'm sure they're thinking, what what the heck is this man doing reading Shakespeare's Macbeth to us? But he always said there's nothing like it. So he was less widely read than you might think. But what he read were the books that got to the heart of things, you know, got to the heart of the soul, got to the heart of the truth. And so he was... Um, it was just a remarkable man. I think of all the figures I deal with, he may be the most enigmatic. Well, de Gaulle's enigmatic in a different way because of his austerity of character. But, but Lincoln has one of those souls that is uh, complex, you know. Uh, George Washington embodied the Roman virtues in an American context, was a thoroughly decent man, who, who loved liberty and loved his country, but one doesn't 
I, I don't think there was probably you know, a terrible amount of complexity in his soul. But with Lincoln, there was there were there was great complexity. Right, it could have been too much. I mean, with Lincoln, the amazing thing is that he actually also had the gifts of statesmanship in terms of action, because. Uh, and that, that's a rare, that's a very rare combination. I would say Churchill very similarly, just a, a, an, an incredibly rare combination. In your book, you have six major characters, Edmund Burke, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Charles de Gaulle, and Vaclav Havel. Now, I, I, and by the way, I'm with you entirely on five of those, still remain to be convinced uh, on the sixth. But nonetheless, I begin with Edmund Burke and Alexis de Tocqueville. I, I still think that I could spend the rest of my life um, in terms of a secular conversation, in conversation with those two, I find myself in an intellectual conversation with both of them uh, almost every day. And, and I think my basic uh, understanding of the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think my basic understanding of the entire you know political structure and uh, of government and, uh, and, of, and of how culture works and, and what liberty means. Is, is very much tied to those two figures. I was surprised in one sense, and, and, and pleased that you identify them as statesmen because it just, and you know, both of them held office, but not major office, and frankly, not for long, and neither one of them is remembered primarily for holding any political office, either in parliament or, uh, or, or in France, uh, especially ambassadorial positions. But, but nonetheless, both of them still are major figures astride the world stage. And uh, I appreciate you beginning with them. And I would say this, some of our conservative friends who are tempted by, oh, on the, on the Catholic right, integralism or others who've sort of lost faith in liberty under law, or, um, you know, I think if they turn to the tremendous intellectual and moral resources made possible by Burke and Tocqueville, they would see that there's another way of conceptualizing liberty, a proud right. defense of liberty, a tough-minded uh, defense of liberty that is shorn of all hostility to religion and utopian illusions. Yeah, about the... Um, the the amount of time each spent as a statesman, uh, Burke and Lincoln, respectively. Guess I would include um, the period 1790 to 1797, the period when uh, Reflections on the Revolution of France was written, the letters on the regicide uh, piece, uh, thoughts on French affairs, and, and many other great works, and, and the great valedictory uh, letter to a noble lord. Um, I would say that Burke's public opposition to the first manifestation of ideological yeah. despotism, of ideological fanaticism in the world was an act of statesmanship. You know, in the British oh, absolutely. In the British Parliament, he spoke I'm up. agreeing he, with you, not disagreeing. No, I'm no, just no, I know. noting the fact but, that— But you're that, right. Yeah, he yeah. only held—first of all, the Whigs. He was a Whig. He broke with right. the Whigs over the French Revolution— You'll remember the great letter yeah. from uh, the old Whigs to the new. Uh, uh, he was shocked that people like uh, Fox uh, were so ebullient about uh, the French Revolution and so blind to the fact that it was something very new and different under the sun. It was an armed doctrine, as he put it, you know, much as Soviet communism was. Um, but uh, he, uh, the Whigs were only in power briefly, I think, 1783, and he held a 
lower level cabinet position for you know six months so or maybe less so yeah he he uh Tocqueville on the other hand um he too was like uh like uh, Burke he was a parliamentarian under the uh the early honest monarchy and then he ran for office and won after the revolution of 1848 as I show in my chapter he was extremely critical of the socialist turn that the French Revolution was making with the Revolution of 1848. But on the other hand, he wanted nothing to do with the uh, conservative authoritarianism that uh, Napoleon, uh, Louis Napoleon, the nephew of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, represented. So Tocqueville really was, in his own self-appellation, a party of one, you know, he uh, he wasn't he, well. He had great respect for the old regime. He knew you couldn't go back. He um, he uh, he called himself a strange kind of liberal because most of the other liberals were too indulgent toward the left or too open to anti-religious sentiment. He um, he was the only Frenchman of note who understood that the American model provided important resources for thinking about constitutionalism and the rule of law and how a democracy could be decent and effective. Um, I call and liberal him the, in that sense. The, the sense yeah. in which you're using the word liberal means uh, belonging to the tradition and the advocacy for classical liberalism, classical Absolutely. liberty, um, not liberalism in any modern political sense. Oh, no, no, no. And we have yeah. to, the, the word means so many different things today. Um you know, liberal, liberalism, I'd say, for about 100 years now has been dominated by the an impulse, the pandemi à gauche, no enemies to the left. You know, uh, Lincoln Steffens, the uh, muckraker journalist, went to the Soviet Union in 1923, and he said, I have seen the future and it works, you know, and you were a long way from Burke's clarity. I have read Lincoln Stevens and he lies. And he lies. Lincoln Steffens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's a, it, it, it's it's a, a word. I just I just want to pause because when people hear it, you know, it's also generational, and they don't understand that we're talking about it uh, in an 18th century and uh, early 19th century sense, which means the the constitutional um, uh, principles of uh, of ordered liberty. Yeah. That uh, that both uh, Burke and and Tocqueville, uh, you know, you know, for you and me, for. I think Burke and Tocqueville are the great theoreticians, and to some extent practitioners of this tradition of ordered liberty, and it is a kind of liberalism. It's also a kind of conservatism because they knew there could be no tradition of liberty without conserving. That. I mean, I always tell my always tell my students over the years, just think for a minute. Well, there was some talk among the revolutionaries that they were doing something, making Republican government work for really the first time, that this was a new order of the ages. There was some heady talk like that, but never would they have thought of calling uh, the, the writing of the Declaration or the establishment of the Constitution in 1787, seeing it as the commencement, commencing of year zero. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that, I mean, that, that, that again, that, completely that's alien. the French Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the year, and, the establishment of the Republican Constitution in France was year zero. Right. And that's a refutation of Christianity more than was. anything And by the else. way, the French Revolutionary yeah. character calendar 
uh, got rid of Sunday. Uh, the, right. the, the Ducati, which was the 10th day of the week, was sort of the day that people had off from work. But even Robespierre, who, you know, wanted to make up a civil religion based on, yeah. uh, you know, the supreme being and and, and certainly favored uh, terrible persecution of the Catholic Church and the Christian religion. Uh, even he was concerned. He said, boy, people have off on the Ducati and they go to the taverns and drink instead of going to, to church to worship. So he wanted to make up his own religion so people would you know, not be unruly on, right. on the on the fake Sabbath. But yeah, no, liberalism is a, a, a contested tradition. But um, and it's a word I avoid, honestly, uh, because I, 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 I talk about ordered liberty. And I just want to make clear that in, in the political sphere, in one sense, in a very real sense, to uh, to believe in ordered liberty put you on the left in the 18th century, but far on the right in the 21st century. That is and absolutely it's the, it's right. The same, the same ideas in this context are profoundly conservative. And that's where I would say that Burke and Lincoln are figures who are at the same time liberal and conservative for precisely the reason you just highlighted. I wrote a book, I think you know, uh, from 2010 or 11 called The Conservative Foundations of the Liberal Order. And I talk about certain figures, sometimes I call them conservative-minded liberals or liberal conservatives, but it seems to me those of us who belong to that grand Burkean, Tocquevillian, Churchillian tradition, we are the party of ordered liberty. We are the party of constitutionalism. And I would add one other thing that was really central to Tocqueville's statesmanship and thought as he said, at the great desideratums, the great task was to keep the spirit of liberty and the spirit of religion together. Now, for Tocqueville, that did not uh, mean or necessarily mean an established church, but it meant secular authority that was friendly to um, a, 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 a Christian understanding of human dignity, uh, 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 an understanding of the of, of what it means to exercise. Tocqueville always said, if you don't have faith, you're going to have despotism because um, faith, uh, besides opening us up to truth and transcendence, it allows us to order our souls in ways that are compatible with living in a, a political order dedicated to human liberty. And if we don't govern ourselves, if self, you know, self-government just doesn't mean the people having a say in government, it means the governance of the self. Liberty right. under law right. is not just the external law, but it's the moral law. Oh, absolutely. That's the reason why, you know, again, the, the U.S. Constitution is only fitting for a religious people. That's exactly right. Yeah. By the way, about Tocqueville, I was going to mention, he was briefly foreign minister of France. That's why I mentioned ambassador, uh, you know, for, I meant, uh, just in uh, terms foreign, of for, foreign, foreign minister. Policy, but yes. yeah. he, uh, he was between a rock and a hard place because yeah. um, he saw the rise of Louis Napoleon, which is largely a reaction to the sort right. of red threat, the, the socialist threat. And, right. um, but uh, I think Tocqueville is one of those people who, all of his thought is statesmanlike. It's directed at providing sound, prudent, 
and I would say quite elevating judgment to guide the right exercise of democratic freedom. But I think Tocqueville will definitely be remembered much more for his thought than his action. In the book, I, I deal with his memoirs because his life as a statesman is quite interesting. Seeing this man trying to defend the cause of liberty and human dignity against both the reactionaries and the revolutionaries. And uh, we Americans have been luckier. You know, we've had <laughs> until quite recently. Now I think we're faced with ideological threats that, if I can put it this way, seem terribly un-American. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and terribly uh, uh, toxic. Uh, you know, will, will undo ordered liberty because it hates, these ideologies hate ordered liberty. I, I need to turn to a couple of, uh, let me just tell you, one of the joys of a book, and uh, as, I, as I said, I've got an entire stack of your books here, and uh, appreciated every one of them. I can recognize but, a few of them there, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure you can, and, uh, and I commend them. But uh, the fun of a book is where you're surprised. And, and, and so, and the surprise can be pleasant or unpleasant, okay? So let me, just, okay. let me talk about the pleasant surprise. Um, I knew of your uh, admiration for De Gaulle. You'd already written a monograph uh, on De Gaulle. Correct. And so uh, as a boy, as a, a, a boy trying to understand the world around me, uh, I quickly discovered Winston Churchill as a hero. And uh, uh, yet not De Gaulle, now, partly because De Gaulle so irritated Churchill uh, right. and because I came of age when De Gaulle represented a certain strain of anti-Americanism. And uh, and so uh, honestly, so I, I, th th that's how I kind of thought of De Gaulle. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, one of the experiences of my adult life has been kind of a continuing reappraisal of Charles De Gaulle. And uh, he's kind of protean, I would argue, in that uh, that all these great leaders are. And that if you took him at any one season, you wouldn't see the you wouldn't see the whole. But uh, you know, reading De Gaulle's memoirs and uh, and and then understanding more of uh, of his sense of France, that's uh, as he said, a certain sense of France. Um, it's led me to believe that he was one of the indispensable men of the 20th century, and uh, and, and one from whom we can can continue to learn in the 21st. Yeah, let me say this about De Gaulle. I mean, De Gaulle really had um, a soul, a complex soul, that embodied many of the classical virtues this desire to do something great for his country, but always within the bounds of honor, liberty, and something he cared very much about, the independence of France. During the war, it is true, De Gaulle, uh, Churchill helped De Gaulle immensely. There's a French historian, Francois Carcedet, who's written a book called or Churchill, I guess the French would say, Churchill et De Gaulle. But uh, it's... Um, despite all the tensions during the war, and they mainly had to do with de Gaulle's prickliness in reminding the Allies that France wasn't finished and couldn't be taken for granted. Churchill actually had great sympathy for that. He did. He spoke of it openly. Yeah. Roosevelt had none. He right. thought de Gaulle, he misjudged him. He thought he was a prima donna. Well, he was, but that's but but that was a that was a part of his self consciousness. Absolutely, it was for France, not for De Gaulle. That's what. Uh, well, you you you're getting right to where I'm heading. Churchill said to De Gaulle once. I mean, to uh, Roosevelt. Well, Roosevelt says he thinks he's Joan of Arc, 
And Churchill said, well, he sort of is Joan of Arc. That's exactly know? right. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, the Gaul says in his memoirs, uh, uh, Roosevelt thought I was an egoist, but he said he didn't realize that my actions were for the, were the, for the sake of France. They weren't simply self-interested. And he was quite willing to leave power in 1946 when his vision of a revitalized constitution with stronger presidential leadership was rejected by the French political class. Then we get to the 1960s. I mean, de Gaulle was anti-communist. There's no doubt about it. He, uh, during the Berlin crisis of 58-61, he was very hawkish. He alone of the Western leaders wanted to tear the wall down. He was very strong ally of the United States during all those crises, including the Cuban Missile Crisis. But he wanted a NATO where Britain and France played a much larger role and where they were not, as he put it, somewhat indelicately dictated to by an American generalissimo. And that ultimately led him in late 66 to withdraw France from the military wing of NATO. But it's interesting, de Gaulle had very good relations in the last months of his presidency with Nixon and Kissinger. Oh, absolutely. Nixon and Kissinger. Realpolitik. Yeah. They appreciated that even though de Gaulle was a pain in the neck, maybe he exaggerated the capacity for the French acting independently in the world. But... uh, Kissinger wrote then and later, he said, you're not going to get pacifism out of France. You're not going to get nuclear disarmament. In the big crises, they'll be with us. And paradoxically, countries like Britain and Germany had huge peace movements, disarmament movements and all of that, because perhaps they were too dependent on American power And so de Gaulle may have been right about the asymmetries of NATO, but there is no doubt that his prickliness, his Kissinger once asked um, uh, in 1969 when Nixon and Kissinger went to Paris and, uh, and you know, and and de Gaulle had wonderful relations with Cardinal, uh, with Conrad Adenauer, the chancellor of Germany from 49. And they, they met over 40 times and, and uh, they signed a treaty of friendship. And there was a great, they were both religious men. There was a great mass in the cathedral at Ram, you know, you couldn't see that with the EU, you couldn't imagine that with the EU today, that there could be any understanding of the Christian foundations of Europe and the European project. But uh, Kissinger says, well, what if Germany starts acting up again? Those old military traditions come back. What are we gonna do about it? And the goal says, uh, la guerre, war. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But, you know, uh, Professor, there's something we, we just ought to comment on here. And yeah. that is this. The last uh, seven decades yeah. represent the longest period in the history of Western civilization when the French and the Germans have not been at war. That is exactly right. That is no small thing. And I think it's really that period. There, there had been the beginning of that reconciliation. I mentioned Churchill's great speech at Zurich. There was a coal and steel pact. There was the the, the European uh, Treaty of Rome and- uh, Commodities. Yeah, yeah. But it was between 58 
and 63, that the real alliance, the unshakable alliance and reconciliation between France and Germany had everything to do with the personal relationship and dual commitment of Conrad Adenauer and Charles de Gaulle. And that, it was a moment in modern, you know, we don't see men like that anymore. No, and, and you know, uh, one of the most interesting moments that uh, we often just don't think about very much is that with the, uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the, the question of the reuniting of Germany was one that, uh, that actually in the emergency called out the best in France again. It did. Uh, in the sense that France could have basically opposed and perhaps prevailed in preventing a reunited Germany. And France had more to lose than anyone else. And yet uh, France, uh, France went for ordered liberty again. The uh, European statesman who was most skeptical about the reunification of Germany and most worried about what we used to call German revanchism was Margaret Thatcher. Absolutely. Uh, she yeah. was really, really worried. And I think exaggeratedly so. Um, you know, it's an irony because Margaret Thatcher was probably the most tough-minded anti-communist leader in Europe. And yet, when the moment came for East Germany to be dissolved and united within the Federal Republic of Germany, she was very, very nervous and apprehensive. But um, my, uh, it is true Germany ha yields a tremendous influence and power within the European community, but I would say when it comes to military uh, strategic matters, the bigger problem facing Germany is a semi-pacifist culture, not the other way around. Oh, absolutely. And I, th I think that becomes glaringly apparent in the last year. Uh, you know, we, we can certainly see that. It's a, you know, the, the big question is what in the world would Germany do to defend itself? Uh, the question is thus far, not nearly enough. I want to ask you a hypothetical question. You hint at this at the end of the book. When you mention Reagan and Thatcher, uh, two heroes to me, who I got to observe on the world scene, let me just back up and ask you a question, kind of a hedgehog and fox question. Uh, is it better for a statesman to know many things or just a few things? I don't think there's simply, uh, there's a simple answer to that. There are some, I mean, you look at Lincoln and... Uh, Lincoln, for all his greatness of soul, really was centered on that question of whether or not a union dedicated to liberty and to the truths of the Declaration of Independence was compatible with chattel slavery and certainly the extension of slavery into new states and territories. Churchill had a very rich and capacious soul, but I think he's mainly remembered for that Manichaeanism you spoke about, that singular sense of the evil and danger posed by the totalitarians. Um, Reagan and Thatcher were runners up in my book because um, I couldn't quite call them thinkers. Although Mrs. Thatcher gave some marvelous speeches. Some of her speeches like to the Scottish Kirk while yes. she explained why she wasn't a socialist. She's a yeah. very serious Christian. And the left always, when, when she- I, I, I cite that address uh, quite often, including one published work about uh, 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 
Lady Thatcher. Uh, yeah. That was an amazing speech, partly because she gave it in the face of a crowd she knew would reject nearly every word she was saying. No, she was uh, she was a very courageous woman. I think her speech at Bruges in 88, where she defended a certain vision of Europe that had very little to do with the post-political, technocratic, post-Christian vision of the Eurocrats today is a very great speech. Uh, she was a formidable woman. She played a major role in the denouement of the Cold War. Reagan was always intellectually underestimated. We know uh, his radio addresses. Uh, he always... He may not have written all of his speeches, but he played a man. Reagan in 87 insisting that he would uh, he would demand that Gorbachev tear down the wall. Everyone in the bureaucracy, every all his advisors, except for his his speechwriter, Peter Robinson, wanted to get rid of that. Absolutely. And, and, and they they thought he had until he said it. He did. That was Reagan's, you know, Luther's famous remark, here I stand and no, yeah. uh, do no other. He was not going, he knew, however much he got along with Reagan, well, I mean, with Gorbachev, welcomed this new thinking in the Soviet Union. Something was going on. He knew the end game had to be the fall of the Iron Curtain, symbolized by the Berlin Wall. So, uh I had to end the book with a tribute to the two of them. Um, I didn't think, especially on the statesman as thinker front, that they quite demanded a place in my pantheon, but they are two heroes of mine. And I don't want, I call them conviction politicians. I do not want to underestimate the, the, the role that principle and thought played Think of, I, I wrote a piece this summer uh, for the, I believe, 70th anniversary of the publication of Whitaker Chambers' Witness. Great book. I'll tell you, uh, Reagan was deeply shaped by that book. And, uh, and that's no accident that in 1984, the, you remember the Marxists would say it's no accident that Reagan posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Whitaker Chambers. And that was not only a sign, I think, of, of, of Reagan's deep anti-totalitarian convictions, but that was a book that spoke to his heart and mind. And um, now they were great, great men. I don't like these elements on the right today who besmirch them. You know, they, a lot of younger people who don't know much about them or, or caricature them as, you know, libertarians who didn't care. About, uh, and some of them accept the left's. Uh, 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 caricature of both of them uh, as if they're intellectual lightweights. That's kind of the reason I brought them up. And I, I noted how you treated them in the book, and, and it's very respectful. I just want to suggest that uh, it sometimes takes some time to to determine just how much of a thinker anyone was. And so I've gone back and I've read some of Reagan's speeches when he was uh, president of the Screen Actors Guild. And when he was fighting communism, and, and and in Hollywood, and uh, and testifying in 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 Washington D.C. when he didn't have speechwriters, and it's amazing how clear his thought is and how you uh, can underestimate it. And we have to understand, as a liberal anti-communist, he fought the Stalinists in the Screen Actors Guild. He fought them with great intelligence and perseverance, and they end up. Uh, because of the idea, the myth that, you know, McCarthy, the McCarthyism was this darkness, yeah. 
told the whole of America, we forget the damage that those Communist Party members did in Hollywood. The conservatives turned out to be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. And they're uh, uh, no Reagan has always been underestimated, terribly underestimated. And uh, and I would also say, Margaret, you ever come across a book by Rob? Uh, oh, her name was uh, Robin Shirley Letvin. She was an American, was part of a kind of British conservative circle. She wrote a book on Margaret Thatcher and she made very clear uh, in addition to the Christian element that is always underestimated, Margaret Thatcher wanted to recover an appreciation of what she sometimes called the vigorous virtues, you know? And, um, and that only, not only meant courage, but it also meant, you know, um, learning the value of work again, taking care of your family, healthy enterprise, and she thought that they were perfectly compatible with a Christian conscience. Oh, absolutely. She called herself a, a Methodist and the daughter of a greengrocer. By the way, if you want to sum her up, her biography, you know, what, what mo- that underlying background that never goes away, that's pretty darn good. Let yeah. me, uh, you asked me before, so I'll ask you a question. I, I think you have some doubts about my including Havel. Is that right? I, I, I do have doubts. After reading your chapter, I still have doubts. Okay. And uh, why, why? You think he was just too much of a literary figure? Or? I, I, I I mean, you have convinced me that he was capable of uh, not only literary greatness, but of, uh, of, a, of a very clear moral courage as well. I just have to say that I think uh, in terms of, uh, I, I'm a Christian theologian. I just have to say, I think his basic commitment to a European vision that was based upon a secular humanism uh, that, that that's just a failed project. I think it failed in his own lifetime. I think it failed before his own eyes. And uh, how was complicated because he he saw the vacuity of a certain kind of secular rationalism, but didn't quite have it in him to be a Christian. But he or to associate with Christianity. You know, yeah. in other words, as a statesman, uh, there, those are two different things. I want to as yeah. a. Yeah. As, a, as a Christian, make clear, yeah, yeah. but with Havel, it was neither. Yeah, I mean, his 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 anti-totalitarian writings, mm-hmm. um, the power of the powerless, politics and conscience, he certainly understood the essential and integral connection between ethics and politics, and his critique of the mendacity of the totalitarian regimes and ideology is very powerful. But you'll, you'll remember this kind of searching for the the memory of being and the ground of being, the ground of responsibility. It's kind of a philosopher writer's effort to find some element of transcendence that is, I think, in the end, finally too upset. Can, can, can I just say something here I've never said out loud before? Sure. The parallel I see is between Vaclav Havel and Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. Both very, very bright, uh, intellectually gifted individuals, uh, kind of uh, uh, almost superhumanly gifted with certain particular gifts, uh, and yet neither of them, I think, really understanding the world in a biblical or Augustinian sense, and that's always looking to ground human dignity in human beings, which I think is just a, a, a an absolutely hopeless proposition. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would call him a secular humanist because he clearly was yearning for some recognition of transcendence, yeah. but he, I, I, one wishes, perhaps Havel was wounded by the communist experience that he rejected, that, um, you know, the Christian inheritance wasn't quite available to him, even though he saw it's fundamentally, you know, he saw communism as fundamentally mendacious at war with the human spirit. He wasn't a philosophical materialist, but, um, and I, I would I would have to agree with you. I think he had too much confidence in the European project in its present form. And, uh, you know, he had good personal relations with the Pope John Paul II, with the Dalai Lama and people like that. But he also liked to hang around with Hollywood stars. And uh, I absolutely, remember, you know, um, Again, oh, I go back to Barack Obama. I did. just I just find uh, historical parallels. I don't mean okay, identical, yeah, but yeah, historical yeah, parallels. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think Hobbes on many planes a, a whole lot better and, and more intellectually serious than Obama. But there is um, a desire to take one's bearings, perhaps too much, caring too much what certain people think about you. Yeah. And uh, well, Hollywood in particular, if if, if, if you're going to hang around with, uh, you know, the uh, the pin writers group and uh, and Hollywood, uh, you, you are not going to end up a Ronald Reagan or a Margaret Thatcher. I will say this, though. Hobble did regularly go to Miami and he spoke up repeatedly in defense of liberty in Cuba. But none of his Hollywood friends, the people who visited him yeah. in Prague would ever do that because. Sadly, Fidel remained right to the bitter end, a hero. Or oh, absolutely. A, yeah. An yeah. object of affection on the part. This, one of the saddest things in my lifetime, because it's so pathetic, you know, the very pleasant singer, Carol King, Tapestry, everyone knows the song, You've Got a Friend. She went to Cuba, oh, in the 90s sometime, early 2000s and serenaded Castro on his birthday with the tune, You've Got a Friend. And she probably had no idea how shameless that act was. Yeah. You know, the 20th century was littered with such moments. I really appreciate the conversation, Professor. Uh, I, I hope we can continue this uh, uh, another time and pick up where we left off. A book is meant to be an argument. You make uh, your argument extremely well in The Statesman as Thinker. I also recommend uh, to listeners your other books, and uh, I just want to promise we'll come back on to discuss some of them as well. I will be happy to do it. And I'm very glad right at the beginning we were able to talk about uh, the central place of virtue in statesmanship. There's, uh, yeah, where there's no moving forward for the West is the West or for ordered liberty unless we recover the dual categories of the, the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues. So well said, I will leave it at that. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Daniel Mahoney, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. 
For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. Thank you.